Everybody stand up and put your right hand in. No? Okay. <laughs> I did do it at a youth conference one time with like 30 kids, and it lasted almost an hour before we got untangled. They were very stubborn. <laughs> Will you join me in prayer? God, we come to you this day with hearts that are full, full of ourselves, full of our stories, full of what's happening in our lives, the baggage we carry, the things that we bring with us to this place. And so we ask that you take those things from us, that we lay those things at your feet just for this moment and this time so that we can hear the words that you would have us to hear, that we might open ourselves up to be filled with your spirit Open us up and send us out. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord our God. Amen. Today our scripture reading is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, and we're going to start with the 15th verse. Um, Deuteronomy is a retelling of the Exodus story. It's written after, the ex after they've gotten into the promised land, and it's, it's the Deuteronomist, the person who's writing it, is trying to... Um, connect that experience to, the, uh, to their purpose, what they're doing in the land. And so um, Moses here is um, preparing for the end of his life. And so he tells the people what they should do after he dies. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from your community, from your fellow Israelites. That prophet is the one you must listen to. <clears throat> That's exactly what you asked for from, the God, from God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, I can't listen to the Lord my God's voice anymore or look at this great fire any longer. I don't want to die. The Lord said to me, what they've said is right. I'll raise up a prophet for them from among their fellow Israelites, one just like you. I'll put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I myself will hold him accountable, anyone who doesn't listen to my words, which that prophet will speak in my name. However, any prophet who arrogantly speaks a word in my name that I haven't commanded them to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. Now, you might be wondering, how will we know which word God hasn't spoken? Here is the answer. The prophet who speaks in the Lord's name, and the thing doesn't happen or come about, that's the word the Lord hasn't spoken. That prophet spoke arrogantly. Do not be afraid of him. The word of the Lord... Thanks be to God. Israel had a problem. Israel had a problem because Moses, like all people, was getting old, if you're lucky. And if you get old and you're lucky, eventually, like all people, Moses was going to die. Now, this was a problem for Israel because the he they weren't even Israel yet. They were still known as the Hebrew people. Now, Hebrew in ancient Hebrew is a word that means, it's the ancient Hebrew word is apiru, and it means outcast or outsider. The Hebrew people were not a group of people connected by ethnicity. They were not a group of people connected by religious affiliation. The only thing that they had in common was the fact that they were poor or they were outsiders. And so they had a problem. Because Moses was the only thing that was connecting this group of people together. The only thing that held this dis disparate, diverse, 
unique group of people together. And so the Hebrew people would no longer be the Hebrew people once Moses dies. So this is a problem. They had to figure out what was coming next. They had to figure out what they were going to do when the thing that held them together, the center of gravity around which they gathered, was no longer going to be there. Now, they tried when they thought Moses had gotten lost up on the mountain of Sinai. In Exodus, they call it Sinai. In Deuteronomy, they call it Mount Horeb. It's the same mountain. It's just a different name. He went up on the mountain to talk to God, as they'd asked him to do, and he stayed up there a little bit longer than they were comfortable with. And so they tried to replace Moses with an idol. They thought, if we built this calf, if we build this thing, this object that we can control, that we can manipulate, that we can cast onto whatever we'd like, if we just build this, then this will be the new thing that identifies us, this new idol. And um, we don't need Moses anymore because Moses has clearly left us. Moses, of course, eventually came down the mountain. And then they also found that this idol wasn't any more helpful to their story, to keeping them together, because idols don't give anything back. They're just objects. And so he had a problem. They found themselves sitting around Moses' deathbed. Now, Moses does not die for another 16 chapters in Deuteronomy. So it's a long deathbed. And on this deathbed, he tells them exactly what they're supposed to do after he dies. It's 16 chapters of rules about what will hold their community together. Because they think if they just write down all the rules, then we'll be together. Everyone will follow them. It will be fine, right? It's the same mistake the Presbyterian Church made for a long time. We just thought if we had a big enough book of order, then everybody would get along and everyone would stop complaining and arguing, right? How's that gone for us, right? Because inanimate objects don't give anything back. Now, this problem is not unique to Moses. I, in my spare time, have been listening to a book by, um, it's a British comedian, his name is David Mitchell. And he's writing a book, it, he wrote a book, it's called Unruly. And it is the history of um, the British monarchy. It starts way back at the very beginning of the kings and is working its way through. And it turns out the British monarchy, like all monarchies, has the same problem Moses had, which is, at the beginning, there was just a guy who declared himself to be king. He was standing in a field, and he'd won a battle, and he said, I am now king, which worked for the first guy. But um, it turns out that when you declare yourself king, people like to kill you. So he had a new problem. Because who's going to be the second king? How do they decide who the second king is? And so they came up with a plan, which was the first king would name the successor king, right? He would say, now I am king. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be murdered any day now, so I'm going to name Lillian my second, my new king, which was a problem. Because as soon as Lillian's named successor king, what does she want? To be king. And so Lillian then would murder me. Don't do that, please. Right? It's a problem. So they kept having this problem. Eventually they decided, well, instead of naming the successor king, we will borrow coronations from the Byzantine Empire. So somebody went to Turkey and grabbed a crown and came back, 
and said, now you become king when the Archbishop of Canterbury puts the crown upon your head. Right? It was a good system. Until it wasn't. Because everybody just started getting their own bishops and declaring themselves king with their own crown that they made, right? Well, the Archbishop of Canterbury wasn't ready, so I'm going to go grab the Archbishop of Salisbury. He's going to crown me, and now there's two kings. So they came up with a new system. They called it primogeniture. And it says that the next king is going to be the king who is the first son of the king, which led to more murdering. Because now the first son was not patient enough to wait for when dad wasn't there anymore, right? You see how this goes? I don't know how the story ends because I'm only at up, up to Edward III. And he's just invented something called perfurogenitor, which I'm very excited to find out about. So if we could wrap this up so I can get back to my book, that would be great. That was a joke. Laugh here. Thank you. <laughs> right? It's a problem. What happens next? We've wrapped ourselves around this idea of who we are and what we are. But it comes to all of us the day when what we are and who we are no longer works in the reality of what is happening in the world. And we come up against something. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is or, or, or what it, when it is, but at some point in our lives, more than one point in our lives, we run up against something that asks us to reevaluate all of the things. It doesn't mean that the things that came before weren't good or valuable or important. It doesn't mean that at the time they didn't serve a great and important function. It just means that at some point in our life, those things no longer work. It's the problem of the next step. Now, these things happen to us in sort of predictable ways, right? As your children grow up, you realize that the parenting you did with them when they were four no longer works for your 10-year-old. And then you realize that the parenting you did for your 10-year-old no longer works with your 13-year-old, and it just keeps going. Parents have told me that, parents of adult children have told me parenting never stops. They just get older which means it's more complicated because they don't listen to you as well, <laughs> right? And so what worked for us, what was good parenting for a four-year-old is terrible parenting for a 12-year-old. Because if you are still cutting up your child's hot dogs when they are 12, let's have a conversation. The next steps are hard. Next steps are hard not only because it means that we have to step into a future that we don't know what it is, and we're not competent in anymore, but next steps are hard because there is always more than one right answer and more than one wrong answer. It is never a yes or no proposition. It's not like when they went to crown kings, they were like, there's one guy that we have to give this crown to, right? It's not like when Moses died, there was one prophet who was ready to stand up and say, I'm the prophet. There were loads of guys. There were loads of options, and that's true for us too. Next steps are hard because there's more than one yes. I remember when we took my son to the hand doctor. He was a week old. And we took him to the hand doctor at the clinic, and I handed my child, my one-week-old child, to this doctor and said, 
you know, his hands, there's something, there's something wrong with his hands. This guy's seen that thousands of times, right? He knows what he's doing. And what I wanted the doctor to say was, here is the five-step plan to make your son's life perfect. I got this. Here's what we're going to do. Instead, what he said was, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to do anything. He'll figure it out. His brain is smart and big and powerful, and he'll figure it out. We don't have to do anything. You can keep him just the way he is, which is what every parent wants, is to keep their child as that little one-week-old baby. And then he said, but if we do something, here are four options. Here are four options, and they're all good options. And I said, okay, what timeline does that look like? And he said, well, any time after one is fine. Any time after one is fine. He's got to be big enough to tolerate the surgery, but any time after that is fine. And, you know, after we do the first surgery, we'll have to have another conversation about what the next surgery looks like. And then we'll have to have another conversation about what the seven surgeries after that look like. And I said, I came here so that you could tell me what to do. I came here because you're the expert, and you're supposed to tell me what I'm supposed to do. You're supposed to solve this problem for me. Life is like that in all kinds of places. In all kinds of ways, life is like that. The next step is not just one stone to step on. It's not one path for us to choose. It's many. It's multiple. The only path we can't choose is the one that's behind us. Moses was dying, and it was a problem. So how do we know if we've made the right next step? How do we know the next choice that we've made is the right next choice that we've made? And the truth is, we don't always know. Sometimes there's only one right answer. But that is so vanishingly rare. Most of the time, when there's more than one right answer, we take that step forward with fear and trembling and faith and courage. So there are a few ways that we can know what we're doing. The first is to shut up and stop talking so much. We want to move quickly. We want to make decisions fast. We want to go and go and go. And the truth is that most of the time to make a right choice, you got to give yourself some time. You got to give yourself some space. You got to sit with that tension for a little while. You got to move past the immediacy of it, the emotional reaction you have of it. If that doctor had told me at one week old that he could fix my child instantly, I would have been like, yes but it would have been the wrong choice. So the first step is to give yourself some time. The second step is to find out who you can talk to. Who can you trust? And the person who gives you easy answers, the person who responds quickly with a 12-step plan for how to fix it, is probably the exact wrong person for you to talk to. They haven't really listened to you. They haven't really delved deep into your story. They haven't really considered the consequences of the next decision. 
And so you need to figure out who to talk to, and that person needs to be someone who is willing to sit and to listen to you. They don't ask you 10 questions in the first conversation. Find somebody else. And the last step is this, that if when you've made the first step, more right answers open up to you, then you're probably on the right path. Now my kids and I have watched, or started, have watched um, a, a game show, it's called Bridge of Lies. <laughs> fantastic. They start out at the beginning of the bridge and they have to choose between two answers, one of which is right and one of which is wrong, right? And they step on the right answer and then more answers open up and they have to cross the bridge, right? But there's 10 lies in this bridge and our family spends a lot of time standing and yelling at people who have taped this show months ahead of time and live in a different country about whether they're stepping on the right answer or not, right? We yell, it's a lie! We have no idea. It's like, which one are the 12 British home counties that are correct? And we're like, I know this for sure. So <laughs> telling you this, you don't know for sure. You're never going to know for sure. And you're going to step on some lies, and the bridge is going to flash at you and make a scary noise. But you can always go back. You can always take a different path and step on the next right answer. Next steps are hard and they are scary, but they are never, almost never, the end of the story. We always get another chance. We always get another try. And so I encourage you to take the next right step when it's ready for you. To find three people you can talk to. Three people who will listen. And when you step on a lie, encourage you to keep trying and to keep taking the next right step because God is in the midst of all of that. Amen. <laughs>